You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian, a CREC church in Cochrane, Alberta. We invite you to visit our website at covenantpresbyterian.ca or contact us via email at covenantcochrane at gmail.com. We pray that you are blessed by the message. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? This afternoon we are in, once again, the Gospel of John. We're just flying through it now. Just needed a few weeks to string together. We were getting all of three three uh, done today. If you'll go to uh, John chapter 10, verses 19 to 21. Verses 19 to 21. And it reads, There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The Word of God. You may be seated. Well, as we come to the end of the Feast of Booths narrative, we are officially at the end of that narrative. We once again find uh, Jesus causing a stir. We covered last week the fourth I am statement. Uh, This time Jesus calls himself the good shepherd as we went through. And uh, we, of course, went through the ramifications of what all that meant. If you'll remember, the good shepherd in this case wasn't a claim of being some sort of wonderful shepherd who is competent at his job, but he is, in fact, the excellent shepherd, the morally pure shepherd. The good shepherd demonstrates his moral purity by being the shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. He becomes the sacrifice on our behalf. As such, the shepherd demonstrates that his sacrifice was voluntary. His sacrifice was voluntary. You've heard the complaint by those who do not believe in God. I'm sure you've heard this. Follow along, right? Nod along if you've heard this. If there is a God, why do bad things happen to good people? Do you know how to answer that question? I love how R.C. Sproul answers this objection. He does so beautifully in his response. He says, that only happened once, and he volunteered. Jesus made it emphatically clear, didn't he? In verse 18, no one takes it from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. No one takes it from me. I'm giving it up. We can get distracted by the story of Jesus' crucifixion. We often do. We can forget because because we see, first of all, we see the Jews yelling to Pontius Pilate, what? Crucify him! Crucify him! The Jews wanted him dead and chose to free a murderer instead of freeing Jesus when given the choice. We can read about how the Roman soldiers beat him, mocked him, put him on the cross, and then, to finish it off, ran a spear through his side just to make sure he was dead. The Roman authorities gave Jesus over to be crucified. 
The Roman soldiers carried it out speedily. The Jews and the Romans killed Jesus, right? The Jews and the Romans did that. But they could not have done so without the king of kings volunteering to do so. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest Jesus? Remember? Peter did what? He bravely took out his sword and did what with it? He cut off the ear, right? He swiped at one of those at the arresting party and he cut off his ear. Jesus healed the man and then what did he do? He looked at the disciples and said what? Specifically at Peter, we're, we're assuming. But what did he say? What, what are you doing? Put away your sword. Put it away. Are you not aware? <laughs> are you not aware that I could call what? I could call on my father and he will at once at my disposal send more than 12 legions of angels. Peter, I, I don't need your help here. Thanks, but, but put it away. Right? Jesus didn't require his disciples to fight for him for a number of reasons, but most importantly, they didn't need to fight for him because he was doing what? He was doing that which was commanded of him by the Father, namely that he go to the cross, that he lay down his life for his sheep, and as the Son of Man, he would take it back up again into glory. We saw from verse 18 that to go to the cross was a charge better translated as a command from the Father. It was a task to be filled. And as the good shepherd, Jesus could not have done but otherwise, he was given a command, and he did it. Jesus accomplished his task, and as such, is the beloved of the Father. Which then brings us now to verse 19. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Now I want you to notice, I have first, but I really shouldn't have put first. I just want you to notice the cause of the division. I want you to notice the cause of the division. It was because of the words of Jesus. It was because of the words of Jesus. As we've covered numerous times, Jesus says a lot of things that upset a lot of people. What is it about words that causes such trouble? As the title of this sermon spells out, Words, they mean things. That's the title for those of you who want to write it down. Words, they mean things. Humans are made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Notice the pronouns. God is a communicator, and as such, he has given us words in order to convey meaning and message. The first thing he did was speak to Adam after placing him in the garden. Genesis 2, verses 16 to 17. 
The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Now it seems rather silly to me to, th- to think about, but what I want you to think about is, do you think Adam heard God and didn't comprehend what it was that God was saying? Right? Adam hadn't gone to school yet. Adam hadn't, Adam hadn't learned to converse. He didn't, he didn't have English lessons, or in this case, Hebrew. I'm guessing Hebrew. Right? He didn't, he didn't say to God, what are these things I'm hearing? Right? Sounds ridiculous. And yet, Adam couldn't have even thought of that sentence, what are these things I'm hearing? He couldn't even have thought that sentence without meaningful words. To say that words are important in the everyday life of mankind is an understatement. Language, words, are at the very heart of our being. When we view this From a biblical lens, suddenly the words of John's opening of his gospel become even more apparent. Remember John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Of course, John is hearkening back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do that? How did he do that? Verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. God spoke. He used words. And what was the response? And there was light. Let there be light. And there was light. What God spoke came to pass necessarily. What God spoke came to pass by necessity. What I'm saying may seem obvious to you, but I'm not at all convinced that we understand the importance of it. The creation of language builds relationships. And relationships builds community. Our God is relational and has given us the tools to build community, namely A common language. What common language is that? Well, if you're thinking English, eh, got it wrong. He's given us the language of the Bible. He's given us a biblical language. God has given us His words. He has given us the intelligibility to understand His words. One of the most glorious things I find when reading the work of missionaries to new places that don't know the Bible is how important it is for them to put the Bible into the language of the people. It's one of the first things they do. There have been instances where the people being evangelized don't have a written language. So the missionary spends sometimes years, sometimes years creating a written language in order for the Bible to be written down. 
and then in order to be studied. The whole purpose of schools in Christian lands was not so that people could brag about being able to read and write, but the whole point of education in Christian lands was so that everyone could read and understand and study the Word of God. That was the point of literacy. By reading and studying, one can understand the basics of life. Questions like, who am I? Or what am I doing here? Or what is my purpose? Is there a purpose? These and many other questions are pondered by many, if not most, of humanity. There are entire philosophy departments in universities that try to answer these and other lofty questions. It has been said that when the philosophers reach the top of the philosophical mountain, what they're going to find is the theologians already there. To express the importance of words is not easy to do, as you could probably tell. It requires words to do it. Jesus spoke with authority, using words. These words have meaning, and it was in the meaning of these words that others were most upset about. Christians have been called people of the book. The book, this one, contains words. Therefore, Christians are to be people of words. We, as Christians, should love words. It is by words we express our love for God through His Son in Jesus Christ. It is also how we fight the good fight. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4-5 the weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. Think Peter. They're not, they're not our swords. They're not our guns. Instead, Paul continues, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We tear down what? Arguments. We tear down arguments and every presumption set up against the knowledge of God. And we take, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. How do we know if we are obedient to Christ? His words. His words. Words are our weapons. Clear, logical Biblical thinking, using words, is not only our defense, but is also our best offense. Words, when used biblically, when used correctly, when used lawfully, carry with them divine power. That's why we, as Christians, must use our words wisely. I didn't have it in my notes, but as I was thinking through the sermon this morning, it also dawned on me that what does James say about the tongue, about the words we use? Man, we can tear down, can't we? Our words can have devastating effects. Or our words can build up, can do both, right? As Christians, we must use our words wisely. 
And what's most important that I want to get across to you is that the loony left, and I mean that, the loony left, they understand the power of words. They understand this. Which is why they do their utmost to change words. George Orwell understood this when he wrote in 1984, his dystopian novel, in 1984, it's called, showed how those that want to control and undermine society do what? They use words. They use words to do so. The entire concept of newspeak, if you remember from the reading of this book, newspeak was accomplished for that exact purpose. Newspeak was about advancing or endorsing the government's ideologies without question. You may not question the government. You may not question what the government says. When the government says something, you must uncritically follow along. In the novel, this is a, this is a great example in the novel, the term war is peace. War is peace was used by Newspeak. And that was used to suggest that a perpetual state of war is stability. War is peace. Anyone who understands what war is understands that it leads to anything but peace. War is peace is nonsense. It's absolute nonsense, right? But likewise, we have politicians today that use language to distort or obscure the truth. The politicians also read 1984 and thought, that's a great idea. How about safe and effective COVID vaccinations comes to mind? How about the alphabet mafia using love is love? Love is love. Love. That somehow meant to be a profound truth. But we as thinking Christians who love words should understand that love is love is gibberish. It's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. Words. They mean things. We as Christians must hold to the truth that words convey truth. That's what words are trying to do, is convey a message. And we as Christians, who love the truth, should be using words to convey the truth and to fight non-truths. That's what we should be doing. We must not allow the dictionary to be changed unchallenged. Truth is expressed in words, but so are lies. Did God really say the first lie in the Garden of Eden? Words form ideas, and ideas have consequences. It is why the battle for the dictionary is so, so very important. And yet many Christians don't seem to be bothered or want to be don't want to don't want to fight about it. it seems not important to them but it's vital 
A few years ago, Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries announced on his podcast that it was vital for all Christians, all Christians. He said, go find yourselves a hard copy of the dictionary. If you don't have a Bible like this that is translated accurately, go get one. Go get a Bible one you can hold in your hands. Go get, go get a dictionary that you can hold in your hands. Why? Because of the astounding speed, the astounding speed at which words were being redefined in order to advance a wicked ideology. One bent on destroying Western civilization. Of course, in our highly technical age, most of us look up what we need to uh, find out. We just look on Skynet. I mean Google, right? Just look on our phones, punch in Google, and, and there it is. We've, we've got all the information we need. Except there's one little problem. The illustration given by Dr. White was how a simple question, I don't remember the exact moment, but... I I vaguely remember James White's example. It was a simple question given to some politician or academic on a Tuesday that led to a definition change on Wednesday. It happened that fast. It happened that quickly. We need hard copies of our dictionaries. We need hard copies of our Bibles in order to remember what words meant before the insanity started. How bad has it got? Well, this one will be familiar to you. Um, What is a woman? Define that. What is a woman? Our society can't even define what a woman is. And as has been pointed out, if you can't define what a woman is, you can't define what a human is. See, there's a reason behind the madness. If you can't define what a woman is, then logically you can't define what a human is. And if you can't define what a human is, then there's no such thing as a human. There's no such thing as anyone made in the image and likeness of God. All the connections, all the dominoes start to fall. It's about the total deconstruction of our civilization. That's what it's about. Why is the battle for words so important? That's it. And it's not being done with... Our civilization isn't being ripped apart with guns or bombs. But instead it's being done through the deconstruction of language. It's being done with words. Words must, by definition, mean things. Words mean things. Logical things. Coherent things. Reasonable things. When they start to mean that which they don't mean, or if they begin to resemble nonsense, or that which is completely incoherent, You no longer have a means to communicate meaningfully. And when you've lost the ability to communicate meaningfully, society begins to collapse. 
And when society starts to collapse and there's no way to speak, what do you have left? The will to power. That's it. You've got to struggle for power. When words fail to communicate, violence ensues. Therefore, we must fight for words. We must fight for words. Jesus' words caused division because everyone knew what he meant by them. Everyone knew what Jesus was saying. One side believed his words to be false and therefore evil. Others believed his words to be true, which led many to faith and salvation in him. The reason why it caused division was because Jesus' words made sense. Now you could disagree on them, but at least they were logical. Verse 20, many of them said, he has a demon as in, and is insane. Why listen to him? That was one side. And we have taken our time going through many, if not most, of what Jesus has said regarding himself. Can we not find it? This is the thing that really kind of struck me for a second. Can we not find it in our hearts to take pity on the scribes and Pharisees, even, even for a moment? They knew, for the most part, what Jesus was claiming. They understood, more than most, what Jesus was claiming. What kind of a man says the things that Jesus was saying? Who says these things? If they couldn't accept or wrap their heads around the idea that God had come in the flesh, what other conclusion could they have possibly come to? Listen to what they are saying and tell me you can't hear their incredulity in it. Have you ever found yourself listening to a video or maybe found yourself in a conversation with someone in which what you're hearing is so outrageous that you're, that you're stupefied by it? Truly and magnificently awed by how nonsensical or illogical some statement was? Have you ever found yourself in that position? I'm sure most of us have. Especially in today's landscape. This, I believe, is the mindset of the scribes and Pharisees at this point. This is their mindset. They've had enough, and they are trying to iterate just how outraged and verklempt they were. He has a demon. Using their words, they are accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. Demons, of course, are fallen angels who inhabited various fleshly types, including humans, and did the bidding of their master, Satan. It's an interesting accusation, one that can be tested via a comparison of what we know, and I believe they knew as well, by the way. They weren't dummies, but they were lashing out regarding those possessed by demons. So just by strict comparison, it doesn't take long. I've got a couple of examples. We have the... Uh, Gerasene demoniac in Matthew, or sorry, in Mark chapter 5. Uh, if we look at him, he lived among the tombs alone. He was naked all the time. 
He was violent. He was uncontrollable. And he had what we might call superhuman strength. And when you live alone, you tend to not be much of a conversationalist. In comparison, Jesus lived in the open. He lived with others. He was clothed. He wasn't violent, except for that once in cleansing the temple, but he just threw some tables around, right? He was under control and worked miracles for the sick and the needy. We have in Matthew 17 the story of the man who brings his boy to be healed by Jesus. The boy suffers from seizures, is described as a lunatic, and the seizures occur often in dangerous places like around fires or water. The demon is trying to kill the boy. Jesus again brings healing and peace to those he meets. One more example, Matthew 9, where Jesus heals a mute man possessed by a demon. The demon causes the man to not be able to speak. Jesus heals him. The man speaks. Which was the better condition? Everywhere Jesus went, things got significantly better. Significantly less chaotic. And overall, life was better. Where there were demons, things were unhealthy, they were chaotic, and overall worse for whomever was being affected. The accusation of being demon-possessed was as laughable as it was absurd. Then they said, he is insane. I think it goes without saying that anyone who is demon-possessed would exhibit signs of insanity, but as we've already rationally demonstrated, there is no way from the evidence provided that Jesus was or could have been demon-possessed. Now, does that mean he wasn't insane? Not necessarily. If I or you were to make the claims that Jesus made, I think it would be incumbent upon all those hearing to loudly make the accusation that we have indeed lost our minds. Fair? We've gone insane. But what about Jesus? As I've said in previous sermons, Jesus did make some outrageous claims. But he also backed up those claims in both word and in deed. Jesus pointed to the Bible to defend his assertions. Jesus challenged the leaders of his day to point to where he had misspoke or point to where he had failed in the law. Show me, he says. They couldn't. Not once. Not once. Would you and I would like to try that? Show me, fair people, where I have ever erred. My wife would be the first one to stand up, and she'd have a laundry list of them, I'm sure. Jesus, in every way, had shown himself to be of sound mind and body. His claims seemed at first blush to be what we might call over the top, but upon closer inspection, also accurate. They're accurate. Why listen to him? (laughs) Why indeed? Because, as the other side of the argument showed, he may have had something important to say. 
something for all of us to hear. And they said, verse 21, others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. The reasonable, rational side looked at the evidence and and they had come to the conclusion that Jesus and his words do not match what they know of demon activity. Therefore, the claim of demon possession had to be spurious one. Can't be true. It can't be true. Who are you going to believe, say the Pharisees? Us or your lying eyes? Furthermore, they put forth another assertion. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Not only do his words not align with that of what would be expected from a demon, but his actions don't align with that accusation either. After all, healing a blind man is a good thing to do. That should go without saying. Jesus healed a blind man who was blind from birth. Where have we ever seen a demon do something good for someone? Does a demon even have the ability to make someone healed? We know for certain that they can wreak havoc and bring destruction, but can they bring healing? Where's the evidence? There is none. Therefore, if Jesus' words are not demonic, his actions are not demonic, then it would logically follow then that Jesus is not demon-possessed. If he's not demon-possessed and is able to do miracles, such as healing to the blind and is capable to cast out demons, might it follow that Jesus is who he claims to be? Jesus said plainly that he came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Matthew 10, verses 34 to 36. Jesus' teachings, his words, were meant, they were meant to divide. And divide they did. In this particular moment, Jesus was still calling out his sheep from the Jewish sheepfold. We can see right here in this example, verses 19 through 21, an object lesson in what he was talking about. His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. Those sheep that don't follow did not follow because they were not his sheep. His sheep heard him. They were able to see past the noise and the distraction of the Pharisees. They were able to reason past the, accusation, uh, the accusations of the leaders of Israel and see Jesus for whom he claimed himself to be. Jesus was dividing the nation of Israel. There would be those who would hear and believe and those who would deny his claims and fight against him. Jesus had a message. Jesus had a message, and that message continues even today. 
The word brings salvation. The word brings salvation. Don't let anyone tell you that you can proclaim the gospel with your actions without words. This is false. For the Apostle Paul tells us in his, letters, in his letter to the Romans, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you what? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. God has revealed to us the salvation of mankind. And he did it using words. Now much more could be said, but we're going to leave it with this today. Although God overlooked the ignorance of earlier times, he now commands all people everywhere to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I urge each and every one of you to hear these words and obey them. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for words. We thank you for the most important words. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the book that you have given us, the book full of words, words that have meaning and words that must be fought for. For if we don't, we are giving over to the dark side of things where words become meaningless. Lord, help us to always fight for your words, fight for their meaning, and stand upon the bedrock, the foundation of the church. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.